0: Bibliology, Theology, Christology, Pneumatology, welcome to Anthropology 101. I hope that doesn't make you feel like you're in a college course. Hopefully, biblical anthropology will be much more interesting than that. This week and next week, we'll be unpacking what the scripture says about man, about sin, and about salvation by grace. I've referred uh, in the beginning of our study on foundations to the Baptist faith and message. Uh, We don't follow the Baptist faith and message, we follow scripture, but the Baptist faith and message well encapsulates our uh, foundations. So Article 3, if you're interested, you can download the Baptist faith and message and read um, the full definitions and the scriptural basis of our foundations. But Article 3 deals with man, and I want to begin this morning by reading just the first and last sentences in the Baptist faith and message statement on man. Man is the special creation of God made in his own image. The sacredness of the human personality is evident in that God created man in his own image and that Christ died for man. Therefore, every person of every race possesses full dignity and is worthy of respect and Christian love. Well, we know the account of man's creation. We read in the Genesis account of creation in chapters 1 and 2 that God created the heavens and the earth, light and darkness, sea and dry land. Then he populated the earth with plants and animals. And on the sixth day of creation, um, his, his crowning act, the pinnacle of his creation, God created man. Let's read about that in Genesis chapter 1 beginning in verse 26. Genesis 1 verse 26. God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. Now turn over to chapter 2, just one verse, chapter 2, Genesis, verse 7, says very specifically, then God formed man, the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now you can probably see immediately that our biblical worldview of man is radically different than current ideologies like secular humanism and evolution. What does God's word say? God's word says we were created by God and we saw when we studied Christology that we're totally dependent on him for every breath, that he holds all things together. I'll be honest with you. I don't know how anyone could could understand even some of the very basic Uh, complexities of the human body and believe that we, along with all other living creatures, are just a byproduct of some blind, random evolutionary event. That's ridiculous. That takes more faith than it does to believe what God has said. God said we're created in his image. Evolution has no room for that fact and in fact evolution would put us on the same level with animals except perhaps for a difference in in brain size and certain capabilities that we have you see evolution can't accept a, a creator designer there's no room for that in evolution there can't be a creator designer and the reason for that is evolution has no room or use for God Once you admit that there's a God, there's a creator, there's a designer, then you certainly have responsibility to him, and I doubt you'll find any evolutionist that wants that to be true for their life. Humans are not accidents. We did not evolve from animals. The Bible affirms we were made in the image of God. Now, we've said this before, but let me repeat it. That doesn't mean that we physically look like God. You look around the room and you say, Thank goodness he or she doesn't physically look like God. Be careful who you're looking at when you say that. What it means is we're made with a spiritual capacity. We have, uh, for lack of a better term, we have a moral aptitude that enables us to know God and to obey God and to worship God. See, all of creation points to God. God didn't create man just so, just so uh, people would know he existed. All of creation points to God, but only man, of all that God created, only man can connect with God. Now, we know, we, we recognize full well that not everyone is going to choose. Not all men are going to connect with God and obey God and honor God. The moral compass God has given us gives us that ability, but we can all squelch that, that inner voice, which, which we have done. We've all sinned. The good news is, because of our sin, God initiated a plan of redemption. And maybe you've never thought about this. We, we read from the Baptist faith and message that man is a special creation of God. Redemption is another indicator that humanity is set apart from all of the rest of creation. God's plan of redemption was specifically directed and only directed to humanity. Of everything that you read about in that Genesis account, everything that we know on this earth, everything that was created will be destroyed except for man. Man will live forever, either in heaven with his creator, his designer, in eternal joy, or in hell with the destroyer, in suffering and anguish that will go on. It will never end. It will go for all of eternity. Here's an encouraging word. If you're a believer today, redemption should remind you of how special you are to God. You're the only creature he made that can benefit from the redemption offered by God and provided by Jesus. You should say to yourself, of all of creation, God chose to redeem me. In fact, let's say that to yourself out loud. Of all of creation, God chose to redeem me. Now, let's say it again a little bit bigger and with a little more excitement. Ready? Of all of creation, God chose to redeem me. Now, turn to your neighbor and tell your neighbor, of all of creation, God chose to redeem you. Tell them. Tell them. It's an amazing thing, and maybe you've never made the connection when you think about your redemption of all that God made, he chose to redeem you. I'm sorry, I'm about to offend some of you. God's not going to redeem your cat and your dog and your gerbil and your pet hamster. It's not going to happen. I'm not saying they won't be in heaven. I said that once, and boy, mm, I'm not saying that. But of all creation, God chose to redeem man. Well, let's talk about how and and why God created us. God didn't create us out of need. God had no need. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't lack anything. He isn't lonely. That's not why he made us. Remember, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always existed, always been together in perfect fellowship with each other. He wasn't lonely. So why did he make us? Let me give you five, five reasons this morning that God made us. Number one, God made us or God created us to reflect his image. As creatures that are made in God's image, what that means is we were made to be like him. That that brings him glory when we reflect his image. Now, how do we do do that? What do I mean when I say um, that we're like him? Let me just give you a few instances. First of all, we're like him in the fact that God made us as moral creatures. He enabled us to know right and wrong. Does that mean we always act and live as moral creatures? No, but he put in us the ability to know right and wrong. And that reflects him in that he has a perfect sense of right and wrong. God made us his intellectual creatures, some more than others, but it means we have the mind to, to think and, and to, to process, and our minds should reflect the knowledge of God. If you want to know how to reflect God mentally, you got to spend plenty of time in his word, and you have to know his word and know his truth because God made you with a mind that has the ability so you can reflect The knowledge of God. God made us as relational creatures. We have an innate desire, and some people squelch that, we have an innate desire for community, and that reflects God in that God is community. The Trinity is, is a community that relates to each other perfectly. So God made us in his image. God made us to reflect him. God made us to look like him, to reflect that out to the world around us. Unfortunately, we know that sin has distorted the image of God in us. It distorts our judgment. It confuses our thinking. It prevents proper fellowship with others. And and while sin has marred the judgment of God, while the image of God is not seen as clearly perhaps as it once was, we're still made in his image. And through redemption, through the process of redemption that God is working in your life as a believer, he's cleaning up, if you will, that image and restoring that image. God made you to bear his image. Now, I need to say one more thing before we move to point two about being created in God's image. And I think you all that have been here long enough know me well enough to know that I don't go around looking to pick fights. But if I run across something in the passage we're teaching, I I don't avoid it or run from it either. One more word about being made in God's image. Genesis 127. Why don't you look back there? Genesis 127 clears up a lot of confusion in our society today. Genesis 127 says this. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, sometimes I say this to be funny. I'm not being funny right here. The Hebrew meaning of the word male and female is male and female. It just is. God's glory is revealed not only in us being His image bears, but it's also revealed in the distinctions between men and women. The fact that that we have distinct physical characteristics, we're distinct mentally, we're distinct emotionally. Women don't make too much of that being distinct mentally. We all know you're smarter, okay? But we're distinct. And, And here's the thing, those distinctions were created by God. And what did God say when he had finished? What did he say at the end of the sixth day? He said it was very good. We should celebrate masculinity and femininity, not attack it, because masculinity and femininity are gifts from God. And you see that more than ever, biblical teaching on gender is in direct conflict with society's thinking. Today, gender differences are not seen as being God-ordained. Instead, they're seen as, as being social constructs that we use to oppress people but the Bible is clear. And because of the clarity of the Bible, I can say to you today, without reservation, no matter what the cost, that transgenderism and transsexualism are rebellion against God and his purpose and his creation. That doesn't mean that we're against people who struggle and are confused. That just means we have to call out what is sin, we have to call out what is against God's created order in hopes of not condemning people, but being able to have the Spirit convict people and draw them back into right relationship with God and his purpose and his order. Look at the division and and, and harm and confusion Gender chaos is caused in the lives of individuals and families and and churches and, and societies. Why? Because we've ignored God's design. His design is very, very clear. God created male and female. He gave different characteristics, different roles, different responsibilities to each, to male and to female, out of his love for us. It doesn't work apart from God's design. Secondly, God created man to carry his image Secondly, God created man to give him glory. Isaiah 43, 7, God says, everyone who is called by my name, I created for my glory. What does it mean to give God glory? It means to give him praise, to give him, to give him honor. You know, that's what gives your life significance. When you're giving God glory, you, you sense the significance uh, of doing what you were made for. Now, if we don't give him glory, I said God doesn't need anything, and and, and now you maybe hear me saying, well, God needs us to give him glory. No, if we don't give him glory, if we don't give him praise, the rest of creation will. Jesus in Luke 19, 40, when the Pharisees, when he was making that grand entrance and the people were were shouting Hosanna to the the king, Hosanna to the king of the highest, and, and they're shouting all those accolades, the Pharisees said, hey, you need to get your people to be quiet, to calm down, and you know what Jesus said? If these people are quiet, the very stones will cry out. If God can give voice to the stones, if God can give voice, and he could, to to animals, he doesn't need us to praise him. What he has done is given us an incredible privilege of giving him praise and fulfilling our purpose. Giving God glory gives our lives meaning and purpose and, and the joy that we long for in life. If you're familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the very first question, and a catechism is just a tool for teaching doctrine, for de- teaching fundamentals, for teaching foundations. A lot, of, a lot of Christian schools use it, a lot of Christian families use it to teach their children what the Bible says. The first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, We glorify God with our lives, not just our lips. What does that mean? It means that we know his word, and so we learn to to obey him and to honor him. We, We spend time with him. We get to know him on a deeper level. That's what brings him glory by the way that we live. Number three, God created man for relationship with him. And you see this all through the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament where he had his people, Exodus chapter 6 and verse 7, he said, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. God created us to bear his image, to give him glory. God created us for relationship with him. Number four, God created us. God gave man in creation responsibility. If you look in Genesis 2, when God created man, you see that he was placed in the garden to care for it. God said to have dominion over the other creatures and to subdue the earth. We have responsibility. And men, Christian men, let me just say to you, if there's a place we fall down as men, it's right here. We don't fulfill our responsibility. If our families are off course, if our families are not walking with the Lord, it comes back on us as men because we lead our families. And what happens for us as men is we get lazy and we get passive and we reject responsibility. It's exactly what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve. Adam was given the command not to eat from the fruit of the tree. Eve was not even present when the command was given. Now, Eve took of the fruit and ate of it, so we want to blame her because she ate of it and she gave it to her husband, but he was standing right there. When it says she gave it to her husband doesn't mean that he came home from a hunting trip and she had baked an apple pie and snuck it in there. No, he was right there with her. He was responsible and he didn't fulfill his responsibility number 5. God created us to bear his image, to give him glory, have a relationship, to be responsible number 5. God created man with free will. Back in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, it says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you, sa- you shall surely die. Now, in the New Testament, in many of Jesus' parables, you see this, this principle at, at work that he's teaching, and that is that with opportunity comes responsibility. And that was true in the very beginning. God created the world, provided incredible blessings for man, so man was responsible to God for his actions. And boy, we, we chafe against that, being responsible, being accountable. But listen, it's his world. He made it. If you're going to live in his world in the world that he made, then you have responsibility to God. And because of the unique way that God created us as men and women, because of the special relationship he has with us, he expects more of us. He expects more of us than he does from the animals and, and other uh, creation. So why did God even place this forbidden tree in the garden? To tempt them, right? No, no. If God were wanting to tempt Adam and Eve to sin, and by the way, James 1.13 says God doesn't tempt anyone. If he wanted to, there would have been many forbidden trees in the garden. They wouldn't be able to turn anywhere without temptation being in front of them. No, that wasn't it. That wasn't the purpose. God placed one forbidden tree in the garden because he was giving Adam and Eve free will, the choice to obey and love him. You see, that, that's the sign of love. That's a demonstration of love. It's obedience. What did Jesus tell the disciples? If you love me, you'll do what? You'll obey my commands. God gave them opportunity to demonstrate their love for him. There were many trees they were free to eat from. There's only one tree that was forbidden. Just one. But they did eat what was forbidden. And we've all disobeyed the commands of a loving God. And so in our biblical anthropology, in our study of man, it's not complete without addressing sin. Sin mars the image of God. Sin separates us from the Creator. It keeps us from having a relationship with Him. It it keeps us from fulfilling the purpose of bringing God glory. Now, I don't need to tell you. You've seen this in your own life. You've seen this in the lives of others. You've seen this in the world that we live in. Sin has ruined everything. We don't live the life that God designed us to live because of sin. We don't live in the perfect world he originally created because of sin. Well, well what is sin and why is sin so serious? Let me give you four definitions of sin this morning. Number one, sin is a transgression of the law. To transgress means to to cross a line or or to cross a a boundary. When you transgress, you exceed the limit that has been set for you. Many of you are transgressors every day out on this interstate. (laughs) Me too. God's laws are given for our good. You know, a lot of times men, especially men who are in rebellion against God, think that, well, all of God's commands are in the negative. There are all these things in Scripture we can't do. God is just out to rain on our party and and to ruin our fun. You know, Solomon is often said to be the wisest man who ever lived, and there are a lot of his very wise sayings in Proverbs 16. And Solomon understood that the commands of God were for our good when in chapter 16, verse 25, he wrote this, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of Say it, death. Solomon understood God's commands were to protect and to preserve us, to keep us from going our own way that resulted in death. God's God's laws are meant to protect us from calamity, protect us from destruction, and to ensure a life of joy and happiness. In Deuteronomy 6, as the Israelites are about to go in and possess the land, and you've heard me quote from the verses 4 through 9 before. Hear, o Israel, the Lord our God is one. They had to be reminded of that, not to worship the false gods in the land. And then in Deuteronomy 6, Moses tells them, these commands that you're hearing today, he's talking to the parents, specifically the fathers, the heads of households, all of Israel is gathered, but he's speaking to those men. These commands I'm giving you today are to be upon your heart. They've got to take up residence in you first. And then he tells them, Teach them to your children. Press them on your children. When you sit in your house, when you walk along the way, when you lie down, when you rise up all day long, you should be impressing your children with the things of God, the commands of God. But but dads, heads of house, first it has to be on your own heart. Well, further down in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 24, he he says this, same speech, And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God. Look, For our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. It's for our good. That's why God gives commands. It's not to rain on our party or make life miserable. It's for our good, to protect us, to preserve us. But in spite of this truth, man will determine that God's way is not best. Man will decide, well, God can't be trusted, so I'm going to do it my way. That's exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden. God's just withholding from us. We eat from this tree. God knows we'll be like him, so he's withholding from us, so we're going to do it our way. The other thing man likes to do is to excuse or defend his sin by either checking his behavior against someone else, some other sinner. That's a pretty ridiculous thing to do when you think about it. Or if he's not checking himself against someone else, then he'll be quick to point out areas that he hasn't transgressed. The problem is, God's word says clearly, James chapter 2, if you break one law, you're guilty of breaking all the laws. So, no matter what good you and I have done, the totality of our lives can be expressed by one word transgressor. You crossed the line, you've crossed the boundary. Sin not only is a transgression, secondly, sin is coming up short. Of God's standard. Not only did you cross the line in your disobedience, but you've also not lived up to your purpose of glorifying God and reflecting His glory. Romans three twenty three: For all have sinned and fall short of what the glory of God. You've fallen short. All fall short. It doesn't do any good to 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 compare and declare yourself better than someone else. All fall short. Let's suppose this afternoon you're, you're out, you're, you go with some friends on a hike, and several hours into your hike, you come to a, a canyon that you didn't know was there, and the canyon stretches as far as you can see each direction, it's only 30 feet across, but there's no way around it. You don't have time to turn back because you know you've got to be at church at 6 o'clock tonight to pray for the persecuted church. Did I mention that already? Did I say that? Okay. So you decide you're going to jump. So the first person in the group takes a run and jumps. Oh, I didn't mention it's a thousand feet deep. Fifteen feet, as far as that one gets. Maybe there's a twenty-footer. Maybe a twenty-two. Maybe the strongest, healthiest person in the group could be a male or female. I don't know. Says I, I know I can jump that. And he or she runs and jumps. 28 feet. Let me tell you, the 28 footer cannot brag about being better than the guy who only jumped 15 feet because they're both in a crumpled heap at the bottom of the canyon, right? It's no good to, to compare. Why? Because God's standard is perfection. And the only way an imperfect sinner can ever meet God's standard is through Jesus, the perfect God man who takes away our sin. That's the only solution for our sin. We transgress, we fall short of his standard. Number three, all sin is wicked. All sin is wicked. We we like to categorize or rank sin, but God, from his perspective, all sin is bad. A lie is sin. God took the lives of Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5, because they lied to God. Murder is sin. God took the life of the child, Born out of the affair David had with Bathsheba, 2 Samuel 22. Consequences to sin. From God's perspective, all sin is bad. God removed Adam and Eve from the garden from a perfect world for eating forbidden fruit. All sin is wicked. The smallest sin, and I say smallest from a human perspective, the smallest sin can keep you out of heaven. Finally, number four, all sin has a terrible price. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Now, what what does it mean by the word death? There's actually three types of death that result from sin. The first one is very familiar to all of us, and that is physical death. Adam and Eve were created with perfect bodies that would, would not have disease, would not decay, bodies that would last eternally. But at the moment they sinned, their bodies, along with all of creation, began to deteriorate. For us today, what does that mean? It means our physical bodies, our, our material being, is going to decay while we're still alive. Right? Experiencing any of that? And then when we die, our physical body will be separated from our soul or spirit. The good news is, if you're a believer, your spirit, upon the point of physical death, your spirit immediately It's in the presence of Jesus. Because of your sin, you've been forgiven and you're in his presence. What did he say to the thief on the cross, the repentant thief on the cross, who never had an opportunity to go to church, never had an opportunity to read God's word, never had an opportunity to be baptized? Those things are all important. You have opportunity when you come to Christ and and you're still living and breathing. You should be doing those things. But to the thief on the cross, at the moment he was repentant and Jesus recognized his repentance Moments before Jesus died, and eventually that thief died, within a few hours, Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's only the relationship with Christ. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 6-8 said, to be away with the body is to be at home with the Lord. So immediately you're with the Lord. However, your physical body stays behind until Jesus returns. 2 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul was addressing that to that, that church because they had been taught, they, that church came into being after the ascension of Christ. They had not witnessed the crucifixion, the, the resurrection, the ascension, and, and they'd been told that Jesus would come again. Well, it been enough years that people in that body had begun to die, and they began to worry, what, what about those who have died? Are they going to miss the return of Jesus? Are they going to miss out? What's going to happen to them? And so Paul told them, listen, those who are dead in Christ, usually he said asleep in Christ, because it's a temporary state, not a permanent state. At the moment when the Lord comes, at the sound of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. There's going to be a physical resurrection of those who died in Christ, and after that physical resurrection, they're going to meet the Lord in the air, and we'll be joined to meet them as well. So we don't worry about the physical death. Physical suffering and death are the results of sin, but there is a... Worse faith than that. The second death is spiritual death. That's separation from God because of our sin. Adam and Eve, at the point of eating the fruit, disobeying God, sinning against God, at the point that happened, they began to die physically. But they immediately died spiritually. Spiritually. Their, their spirit was separated from God's spirit. You, you remember in Genesis where it talks about they would walk in the garden with God? They had fellowship with him. They had relationship with him. Now, all of a sudden, after their sin, what do you see? They're hiding themselves from God in Genesis 3. And God ultimately puts them out of the garden never to return. Isaiah said it this way in Isaiah 59, your iniquities, your sins have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so he does not hear. Listen, if you're in sin, there's always going to be an emptiness and a gaping hole and a void. Every man and woman who's in sin and is separated from their creator is always going to be empty and void. Why? Because we were made by him and for him, whether we recognize that or not, and apart from him is a meaningless, hopeless life. But believe it or not, there's even something worse than physical and spiritual death in this life. And that's the final type of death. It's eternal death or as Scripture refers to it, the, the second death. It's, it's spiritual death in the life to come. That, that final death is mentioned in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, where we're told that the second death is the lake of fire. What's the lake of fire? The lake of fire is the eternal destination for those who refuse God's offer of salvation. God does not send them there. They refuse God's offer of salvation, and an eternal death means everlasting punishment. You see, just like the believer, the moment you die, your spirit is in the presence of Jesus. Just like the believer, an unbeliever's spirit upon the point of their physical death is immediately not sent to the place where the believer is, but immediately sent to a place of torment. You remember in Luke 16, Jesus talking about the rich man and Lazarus, and as Jesus speaks of the rich man, when he dies, he finds himself in immediate torment. You see, shocking to most people is this fact that just like believers, when an unbeliever dies, they also are going to experience a resurrection. When an unbeliever dies, their spirit is immediately sent to a place of torment, but then the time is coming, just like it is for the believer, that there's going to be a bodily resurrection. John 5, 29, John said, all who hear his voice, he's talking about those who are in the tombs, not just believers, all those in the tombs, all who hear his voice will come out. Some will be resurrected to life, some to eternal punishment. Unlike believers who are going to be resurrected to eternal joy and bliss, unbelievers are going to be resurrected to eternal suffering. And at the point of physical death, they will never be able to change their destiny and destiny, they will ultimately be sent to the lake of fire where they will suffer forever. Listen. I don't care what teaching you heard, let me assure you what the Bible says. They won't eventually die. They will not cease to suffer. They will always be in physical and spiritual torment forever and ever. Don't you feel blessed for having come to church today? This is not pleasant to, th- to think about or talk about, is it? But sin is serious. In God's sight and as we think and talk about the consequence of sin we ought to be thinking and talking about people who experience eternal death for their sin and it's absolutely unnecessary that they experience death for their sin the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord now you're here today Because the Spirit of God drew you here, and you're here today because the Spirit of God drew you to hear his word for one of two reasons. Either you've not received forgiveness of sin and the gift of life that Christ paid on the cross. You've not understood the seriousness and consequences of sin, or you haven't cared. You haven't understood that God made you for himself, and there's never going to be fulfillment in this life or eternal life in the next life apart from him. Maybe you haven't understood that. Maybe that's why God brought you here today to hear that. Hebrews 9.27 says this, It is appointed once for man to die. That's talking about physical death. It's appointed once for man to die, and after this comes the judgment. You're not going to avoid God. You may do everything you can to avoid him in all of this life, but when you come to the end of life, you're not going to avoid God. And it's too late at that point. Maybe he brought you here today to hear the message of God's incredible love for you and creating you and God's desire that you have a relationship with him, but that you can't have that while you're in your sin, you need Christ. Many of you came today already knowing that you've received the gift, but you need to be reminded of what's, what was at stake before you trusted Christ and be reminded of what's at stake for people you know who haven't trusted Christ. You know what we need in our life as believers? We need a little more hell in our lives. And what I mean by that is a little more of a vision of hell and how horrible it's going to be for friends and neighbors and coworkers and family members who don't know Christ. I pray God disturbs us when we think about the horrible consequence of sin and what is coming for those who don't know Christ. May God light a fire under us to get the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, out to our world.